Do you know what the man's saying? Do you? Those who have crossed with direct dialectics. This is dialectics. It's very simple dialectics. One through nine. No maybes, no supposes, no fractions. You can't travel in space. You can't go out into space, you know, without, like, you know, uh, with fractions. What are you going to land on? One quarter, three eighths? What are you going to do when you go from here to Venus or something? That's dialectic physics, okay? Dialectic logic is there's only love and hate. You either love somebody or you hate them. Mark! Is the way the fucking world ends. Look at this fucking shit we're in, man. I'm with a bang. Whimper, and with a whimper, I'm fucking splitting, Jack. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 69. Oxford Dictionary defines day trip as a journey or excursion completed in one day. In other words, the round trip journey. This doesn't say round trip. A journey or excursion completed in one day. If you journey somewhere, my good audience, and have to come back the next day, do we call that a day trip? It took do you we a day call to that, get there. Do we call that a completion of a trip? You said day you trip. have made it to your destination. We have different But have you of... returned from your destination? I've returned. I believe what you're referring to as a day trip <laughs> and c- calling it a completed trip would be referred to as moving. A <laughs> day not, trip. Not moving in Nebraska. Nebraska. Just, I went, took a day trip to Nebraska. You could complete a day trip to Nebraska. Yeah, I could. In a plane. One day I will. You would have to get in a plane. You'd have to complete a yes man situation. We are entering yes man it scenarios. It takes me one Do day to drive you to Nebraska. you want to be in a yes man situation? And as a matter of fact, I think in yes man, they might actually travel to Nebraska from California. It is one of those flyover states they travel to. Hmm. So you are, you are the Zoe Deschanel in the situation, stuck in a barn with two years before he went crazy, Jim Carrey. How does it make you feel? I have often been the Zoe Deschanel in many situations, Mario. Oh, okay. So I'm used to I'm used to that. Well, let's cut to the chase. This, we Mario are breaking, said something silly last we week. We are breaking about our farm-to-table rule. About the beers being day trip. And I jumped on it. I said, oh, day trip, Nebraska. Because I always had this idea about driving to Nebraska because it takes 24 hours to get to Nebraska. And how, we, many, how long would it take you to get back? 24 hours. The same I could make hours? it there in a day. <laughs> the same 24 hours, though? Yeah. Okay. Depends what the time-space continuum is doing. Yeah. If, sure we, if we sure jump into a... a I can as long as you fall asleep, or like pass out before you jaunt, you'll be fine. Did I cross off the day on my calendar before I left? Because if I didn't, and I come home, and that calendar still I'm says really that... I'm disappointed you missed my nice little reference there, by the way. To what? I said, as long as you fall asleep before you make your jaunt... You'll be okay. You won't go crazy. What's that in reference to? The Jaunt by Stephen King. Oh, what's, who, who, when, which book is that in? Mm, different Seasons, maybe? Let me look it's not up. in Different Seasons. What is that out of? Night Shift? It is out of Skeleton Crew. That's what I meant. That Night Shift. I missed it. 
So it's a good one. That's a scare. That's one of the scariest Stephen King short stories. I'll Maybe the scariest I'll one. Check for it me. out. I'll check it out. Um, but we got a beer from Nebraska today, guys. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Beer from Nebraska. It's called Hop Anomaly. How much one does this cost you? Five hundred and eighty fifty-one dollars and eighty cents. It was not cheap. And Nicolette paid for all of it. Um, it is ale aged in Chardonnay barrels. That sounds like a sour. Ready? I'm gonna I'm gonna read this to you. Contained within this bottle is an artful creation that began with our draft hop anomaly and is further enhanced by its six-month maturation in French oak Chardonnay barrels. When did Nebraska gain pretension? It's fucking Nebraska, baby. They can do whatever they want. Did you just call me baby? Let's, do, let's knock these together. I will say one thing about Nebraska before I drink this beer. When I moved out here, I drove across country along the Interstate 80, mm-hmm. stopped in Nebraska, got some French fries. They fry their French fries there in corn oil. Ooh, it's delicious. Let's do it. So, dink next, it. Next week. Oh, that's actually pretty good. Mm. That's so subtle. Got a lot going on. Yeah, but it's really subtle. It's got layers, like it's, an onion. It's but um, aroma betrays it because it doesn't taste like it's it got, smells. It's got a super sour smell. You're, you're expecting a um, farmhouse ale from that smell mm. so you're expecting a lot of uh, a puckery up front a, a very kind of maybe not lemony but you're expecting you know, a that, sweetness that too. puckerness to it really i'm not expecting a sweetness i'm expecting a sour well because of the chardonnay well you're not a big you're not a big you're not a big farmhouse shower sort of wild ale guy right? i do not like farmhouse showers no <laughs> gotta try a farmhouse shower <laughs> thanks for making fun of my lisp <laughs> you have a lisp um but but then when you taste it, it's it's got it doesn't have like a, a super sweetness. It's got a roll that around in your face. It's got a slight pepperiness, um, but a really subtle fruit flavor that I can't identify. Not stone fruit. Pear. I said not stone fruit. It's a pear. Wait, is it a pear stone fruit? I was just was no. a dick about that. No, it doesn't have a pit in the middle. Oh. It's got seeds. <laughs> I look like a real idiot now. Like an apple. Um, maybe a pear. Hmm. Like that brownish, that brownish pear. What's that one called? A Bartlett pear. Bart, maybe a Bartlett? no. Bartlett pears are green. No, not yeah, Andrew yeah, pears. No, no, the other one. I know. This is not pear podcast. So we don't. I don't think our we listeners are requiring us to be After, up on all the pear varietals. We're gonna go back in the alphabet and become. Pear film. This is a ten point six out. Um, yeah, I don't know how that. I, I saw that in the picture you sent me. I don't know how this is ten point six. Hmm. It's so subtle that it's it's not boozy in any way. I like it's it. Good. It's, it's a good. solid beer. Nebraska, you did it. Well, well, I guess when you live in Nebraska and you have no vistas to see, and one of you think that's what it is. It's the, the lack of vistas that inspire their good beers. <laughs> one of the great things about Nebraska is this, like, just. One part where there's a parking lot on one side of Interstate 80 and like a, a sort of mega store on the other, and there's just like a walkway over it. Yeah. It's like the one sort of instance of elevation. I'm not shitting on Nebraska. I'm shitting on the topography of Nebraska. They can't help that. Yeah, um, the, the Nebraskans didn't do anything to the topography. Yeah, it was like that when they took it from the Indians. Yeah, Native American. Native Americans. <laughs> Dick. Um, but when you when you don't have that much, you have to get inspiration from the earth. Because you're really close to the earth. And so. And the Tupperware. So it's good. I like it. It was good. Um, what did we see this week, Mario? We saw. We well, saw really something. quickly before this. Um, oh, did you yeah. read this article 
It's a pretty depressing article, continuing the um, the trend. And I, I, there's there's not much to say about this. It's just one thing that I'd say to our listeners, maybe the read. It's in Variety, the How America's Biggest cha- Theater Chains Are Exploiting Their Janitors. Mm. And it's basically saying how they're subcontracting. Um, it's an expose by Variety. Subcontracting their work to these various janitorial corporations who then subcontract it to other individuals who then eventually subcontract it to uh, immigrant populations Mm -hmm. who end up getting paid maybe $350 a week if they're lucky uh, for seven days a week of work with no sick days, no holidays. And sometimes by themselves. By themselves are sometimes being forced to bring their children because they can't babysit their children or being forced to use their children even for labor. Yeah. Um, and being denied things like days off for the death uh, of, of their son, as they mentioned. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I don't know. This, this is continuing the argument for me of just how shitty unfretted capitalism is, you know? Well, you just don't. And it's, I think the problem is, too, when I was reading this, I was like, I didn't. I go to the movies all the time. Like I never really thought to myself, like, "Oh, this is how this place gets clean." I think I just assumed that the people that work there just clean it. <laughs> but apparently, that isn't apparently that isn't true. So they have to hire people to clean it. And I'm guessing because it's well, they have they have cheaper the to ushers. Hi- they have the ushers who will clean it in between showings. But these are the deep cleaners. My question who- is, it's so it's gotta be it's. My problem is that these companies, and this is the same thing with all companies, that they and find this is this is a situation that's cheapest that's, way to do this is something. a situation that's not just exclusive to theaters. It's endemic with uh, situations like major box stores or grocery sure, yeah, yeah, stores, yeah. even or with the Southern. They had, I mean, they had these people doing this stuff when you and me both worked at, at um, SCSU. They were, you know, that wasn't even they were hired by the state. They were sub, no, they were subcontractors. Um, and they worked all. They worked all the time. They were always there. I mean, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know how much you got paid. I don't know what their benefit package was was like. But they were always there. The same two people were always there cleaning. You know, uh, you know, floor to ceiling, the whole building. Um, and it's just it's problematic in the sense that these places have discovered that it's cheaper to just pay or not pay someone to clean their theater than it is to just make. Like a ten dollar an hour, you know, employee. Each ten dollar an hour employee that's at the movie theater past a certain hour just clean some stuff and then go home. I mean, I remember when I used to work at Boston Market. And I don't know how much we want to spend on talking about this or any food service place, but specifically Boston Market, we would spend at least an hour and a half after we closed this restaurant to just clean everything. But that was just part of the job, and I got paid for it. And as people should get paid for it, it was part of you know what I did. Um, yeah, just, I just, I find these stories just so gross. Yeah, and, like, people would make the argument that theaters are becoming more expensive. Um, you look at, you look at the macro trends of their net profits, they're decreasing overall as a theater. Um, you know, they're going from, you know, even earlier in the decade, they're going from 12, 13% net profits. Now they're, like, this is at least from AMC, now they're around 3 Four oh, percent, poor babies. Well, but beyond that, it's it's the fact of then you find other things. You know, you increase. You if you have to increase concessions, you increase concessions. If you have to cut salaries and administration, you do that. You find other ways of doing things. Or if you can't exist anymore as a solvent situation to as a solvent company to actually 
provide a service for people while also providing living wages or at least minimum wages for yeah. individuals, maybe it's time that you uh, shudder. Yeah, I mean, that's why we have Netflix now, right? Yeah, well, Netflix is also having issues. Um, the Dirt, is <laughs> the film The Dirt is now... Sure. Netflix is getting sued now for, I believe, some issues what they did with their workers during the production of the film, unsafe conditions. So Unsafe in the sense that they had to work on The Dirt? Like, at all? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Speaking of unsafe <laughs> conditions, and maybe getting a little lighter, but seriously, um, if you get the chance, read that article. Yeah, we'll post a link to it on the Twitter. Um... Being in unsafe situations, you know, it'd be a very unsafe situation for me or you, being dragged across concrete. There's a lot of imbeciles out there. Start the party. This is a bad idea. It's all cotton candy. skills and the right to acquire proper compensation if the music wasn't ridiculous at this movie that's where we would like fire off like a great like musical thing like you know some rock number but there's there's not a lot of rock numbers there's a lot of like slow jazz there was a lot of slow slow jams by the ojs in this in this movie um dragged across concrete is the third feature film from slow burn Grindhouse director S. Cra- director and writer S. Craig Zaylor. It is a film of two mildly, two decently corrupt uh, police officers in Brett Ridgman and Anthony Lurisetti, played by Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn, respectively, who, um, in the process of doing their work, their dirty work, are found out and exposed by the media and suspended for six weeks. Ridgman, Mel Gibson's character, um, realizes he isn't going anywhere, uh, blames the system, not really his own faults, and decides to seek out income in another source. Uh, speaking to Udo Kier, always good to have an Udo Kier. <laughs> always good to have a shadowed Udo Kier just kind of sitting at a desk. For one scene. Um Gains uh, information on a what he believes to be a potential drug um, sale, drug uh, transaction for a Lorenz Vogelman, played by perpetual villain Thomas Kretschmann. You know, because he's German, he has to be a bad guy. <laughs> he is German, correct? He sounds he's German. Definitely German in the movie. Um, it turns out that this is actually a bank robbery that is going to be committed by three in incredibly emotionalist sociopaths, the kind of villains that S. Craig Zier kind of loves to create in all three of his features. Um, <laughs> concurrently, the story also is about Henry and Biscuit, two hired um, drivers for the three bank robbers, um, who believe that this is going to be a very subtle, very normal, very low-key robbery, Ends up becoming a bloodbath, um, and then an hour-long chase scene leading into a well, we're slow call, burn. We're calling it chasing? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> casual driving down a highway while people muse well, about firing the Firing off percentages? Yeah, exactly. 
and talking about anchovies um, and crud. Uh, eventually leading to a final shootout where, you know, a good six-sevenths of the people die. Spoilers. Oh, wait. I forgot there's also the hostage. Eight, not eight, seventh eighth of the people die. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I have seen all where three you, of I, the S. Craig's. Yeah, and I've only so. seen two. Um, his first one, Bone Tomahawk, and then this one. I watched, you know, the beginning of... of uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99 this morning, and I just didn't get through it. Um, it's a hard one to get through. Because I had stuff to do. Um, no, it wasn't because of any of that. It just had no, stuff but to do it, around the house. And... I, I understand you had stuff to do, but um, <laughs> it is... I mean, you told me that before, but uh, Brawl in Cell Block 99, outside of its opening 40 to 50 minutes and its final 30 minutes, really drags um, during its about middle hour. Mm-hmm. Um there's not a lot of compelling sort of tension in the film. Uh, I, it's actually a movie I found myself fast-forwarding a couple uh-huh. times. Um, I think Bone Tomahawk and this are a little more, I would say, tight. Uh, I know you're going to not agree with that, but um, they're a little well, more... Yeah, they, they, they maintain your attention a lot more easily than Brawl and Cell Block 99. And maybe that's because, much like this film... Um, Vince Vaughn, even though he does a good job in both of these movies... Like, goodish job really kind of drags it a bit and, and sleep it's not necessarily sleepwalks but he's really reserved and held back and sprawl and cell block 99 is all vince Vaughn. well he's just and like, a really good don johnson i was really excited to see don johnson in this because yeah. don johnson is like the shining star in brawl and cell block 99 uh-huh. he plays this really gritty evil corrupt warden mm-hmm. fun as hell and <laughs> well, spoiler for brawl and cell block 99 shoots um, Vince Vaughn in the head in the ending where there's clearly a plastic head and we talked about this I believe in the episode zero where I talked about the hilariousness of some violence mm-hmm. um, when, actually it was episode zero where, where we talked about Blue Robocop? Ruin no episode 100 where we talked about how Blue Ruin barely missed for me mm-hmm. um, the real kind of gritty violence versus the kind of ridiculous violence Brawl and Cell Block 99 has that ridiculous violence where Don Johnson shoots Vince Vaughn in the head his head explodes, and it's clearly a fake head is the final shot. A fake-headed <laughs> Vince Vaughn e- exploding. <laughs> There's also a boot decapitation into a pile of shit in that movie. And, unlike this film, somebody is dragged across concrete and has their face torn off, and you see a, a, a scoop, spooky skeleton beneath. <laughs> just, just like a regular skeleton? No, it, it looks ridiculous. It yeah. looks like... Um, what was was that? Dead Alive? Not Dead Alive. Uh, oh, man. A popcorn or something like that. It was, it was an old, early 90s horror movie mm-hmm. where somebody's like ripping apart their face. The poster ripped apart their face. You see this? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What is um, that? Mm. I can't remember I can the name of that the movie. I can see the poster right now. Yeah, but it looks exactly like that. Yeah, I mean... There's none of that in this. This is actually... I'm doing a lot, a lot more reserved in its violence than Bone Tomahawk yeah. or Brawl and I mean, Cell It seems anyway. like it goes out of its way to include some of that kind of um, ridiculous over-the-top violence, like in the bank robbery scene where that guy shoots that woman's hands off. Like, why does it have to shoot her hands off? <laughs> like, what's the purpose of... And he when, was really upset about the finale of Dexter. Well, and then when they drive by, when Mel Gibson and... So after the bank robbery happens and Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn have not called it into the authorities because they're still hoping that they can rob these people and they're driving by the bank and kind of looking in, there's a 
there's someone laying on the ground with blood all over their crotch, and they're not wearing pants. Um, no, well, that's but, like, because Fred, Fred Melamed played that Mr. Edmonton character. They, they, cast, they castrated him. They, they threatened him with castration if he doesn't return in four minutes, so they castrated him. But they castrated him just, like, right in the center of the thing, and they just leave him there? Of course. You want that shot, right? Um, I mean, so this is... Let's get your thoughts first. While I finish eating. It's really weird. It's a really weird movie in the sense that there was times when I was watching it when I was like, holy shit, this is really working. Like, this is working a lot. And I'm very interested in to, in seeing how this resolves itself. And a lot of that is due to the major aesthetic conceit of S. Craig Zeller, which is this kind of really long scenes where, like, nothing is happening and it's just... Not even... It's like two guys talking. There is a there's 40 space second, between... There's like, a 40-second sandwich-eating sequence with a really interesting sound editing. Well, that's... I mean, so that's where I'm going to go next, is that... So there's all of these... He's making all of these really interesting choices. And they're the same kind of choices I'm assuming he made in Brawl and Cellblock 99 and the same kind of choices he made in, in Bone Tomahawk. And we could talk about why I like Bone Tomahawk more than I like this movie in a little bit. But the interesting thing about it is that this movie is a, a is an objectively bad movie. Like, the sound design is totally fucking bonkers. Yeah. Totally bonkers! <laughs> from, there, the there's, mi- there's... from the mixing to the editing, it's crazy! Um, there, is, there is definitely some situa- There's definitely some moments in that final shootout where there is an echo to the sound and suddenly a sharpness to the sound where you realize that the bullets are from the same direction. The sound, the mic should still be in the same look. The, the kind of omnipotent mic should still be in the same location. Yet there's clearly two different distances to the shots and it makes no sense whatsoever how one shot sounds like it's very close and the next shot sounds like it's a good 10 to 15 feet further away. Well, and so that same, that, that scene that you um, mentioned with the sandwich where Vince Vaughn's eating the sandwich, he just, in whatever editing software he used, he just turned the volume on the sound on that scene all the way up. And what's interesting... Why is it so crunchy? Yeah, it's... A, it's, <laughs> it's like an Italian sandwich. Why is it so crunchy? There is, there is definitely a, a dissonance between the visual and audio there. That sandwich does not look... Has, it looks like it's a cracker sandwich. Like, it sounds like a cracker sandwich. I thought I was eating, like, a crispy churro. Yeah. With meat on it. But... And, and when you see it, the sandwich, it has like a, a little bit of of a crust, but it it doesn't look toasted. It doesn't. There's no real crumbs coming off of it. It sounds that, like he's eating a thick pretzel. Yeah, like a thick hard pretzel. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I kind of thought he was eating like a matzah with like uh, some sort of spread on it from the sound. Um, what's also interesting in that dissonance too is the fact that. Mel Gibson says, I've been like, listening to you eat that for 47 minutes. When the speed with which Vince Vaughn is eating that sandwich would not suggest that it took him 46 minutes. And Ridgeman is a very exact man, right. as yeah. you learn throughout the film, where they kind well, of at least repeat the, percentages. At least through the second half nauseum. of the movie, where everything is just 50%, 75%, 75%, 75%. Also, this, I really actually enjoyed this movie. I enjoyed it too. It, but it, it's just, it's like, like the, the script, script is so bad. The script bad. is bon- I don't call it bad. I would I would go to my Jason Manzukis fandom to say bonkers. It is bonkers. Fine, we'll just steal from Jason Manzukis and say it is bonkers. What the hell? But it's it's endearing. 
But it's so endearing to me in the sense that, like, I was like, this is so fucking ridiculous, the way they're talking. You know, the, the, the adherence to anchovies and crud and really stilted dialogue that well, I eventually kind of, like, bled into it. Why it, nobody... it, like, it pounded me. It hit me on the head so incredibly much and was so, I don't want to say earnest, but it was so nauseant in its persistence to do this sort of dialogue. That I eventually was just like, yeah. And, I mean, I, and maybe that's carried through by, like, the use of, of what, the, the city of Bulwark? Like, randomly creating this fictitious yeah. city. And really heavily dedicating itself to showing you repeatedly that we're in the city of Bulwark. Bulwark yeah. Um, I mean... Which is Vancouver. I... I... It's one of those things, it's so funny because, like, nobody in this movie can say anything without somebody else commenting on what they just said. So, like, Vince, specifically with Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson's character, where they're just, they're constantly... Nobody qu- backtalks Thomas Kretschmann. No, no, no. Um, well, um, I guess Tori, Tori Kittles does a little yeah. bit. Um, but he gets the last laugh because he apparently knows somebody who is willing to just give him lots of money for gold bullion. He's clever. Just fine. He's clever. Just fine. I actually, let's speak of that really quick. I really liked him in this. I haven't known him in really anything. Well, I I was very excited to see him because he is a True Detective alumni. True Detective season one alumni. Was he? He was the the, um, guy that was interviewing Rust and Cole and um, Marty. He was Papa Nia. Okay. And... um, He's excellent in this movie. And this is something that's funny. Mel Gibson's pretty good in this movie. Tori Kittles is pretty good. Michael Jai White, who is always, like, a problematic actor for me ever since he ruined Spawn, um, is actually pretty good in this movie. I even liked, and we're going to disagree about the the purposefulness of her performance. I I typically don't like Jennifer Carpenter, but even she sold that scene. Oh, I get it. I (laughs) I get why they put it there. It doesn't. It didn't need to be there. I mean, it was. It seemed really phony, and especially considering she seemed like she was going to eat that baby. Like it didn't seem like it was like a normal. I assumed that was going to be part of like the plot. Like the dad oh, no. was going to be like one of the guys that was like one of the robbers See, or something. I, I thought. I thought because that their interaction, that interaction with that baby was fucking nuts. It was. <laughs> like she's going through. It feels to be some sort of severe postpartum depression. And he's just like, get out, go to work. Yeah. And like, I was like sitting there going like, is he, was he told by her at a, like the night before, like, no matter what I say, you've got to convince me to go to work. Right. You know? And <laughs> none of that. So for a moment there, like when she's introduced as getting on the bus um, and she does it, I'm like, oh, that has something to do with like a kidnapping and she's a pivotal part of this. And it turns out, no, this is just used to show you the, like, the person who had to sit through Fred Melman's weirdo <laughs> speech about, about her returning to work. Which is never, never in a million years. Which also makes you wonder, like, why is she so unhappy to be coming back to this work? She's going to be back and like, this... this that seems like the best this, bank ever. Yeah. Three months of maternity leave's pretty okay. It's normal, and she yeah. had an extra month. She, used, she had good, four months good, off. Yeah, good cupcakes. Some good cupcakes. Double chocolate cupcakes. Um, um, but in the end, it's it, she's executed by having her head explode, um, and it's just used to show like I don't know the pointlessness of the deaths, the 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 sociopathy of the murderers. Like this is an S. Craig Zeller thing. He did this with the the, trilog- the troglodytes, the the cannibals in um, 
in Bone Tomahawk, yeah, especially are, that split and half scene. But those are troglodytes. Those are those were not. I mean, I think this is. But more, it's it's to right. dehumanize sure, the sure, villains. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, like, these these the they're two of them don't. The Vogelman's doing with the name. The other two are gray gloves and black gloves. One guy looks like he is a Hellboy villain um, with the goggle. Like both and of them. He's in it a lot. Yeah, and he kills a lot of non. No, those, those are people. I think those are two different. Those are two different. The the guy that kill the guy that does the Asian market shooting uh-huh. and the guy that kills the people in the, the car two kids? are two different characters. Oh. Well, it seems like a lot of random because they have different colored gloves. Well, if they had could stage this whole thing. You think they'd have better access to money than robbing kids and convenience stores? Well, I guess the idea. Right? I, I thought the idea with that was they want untraceable funds for some reason. I just to give that guy. And that, I mean, and that to, to to cut off the fact that like if this guy found out about the robbery yeah, okay. and whatnot, but then the second night he sees blood and the the blood is gratis, it's like I think that guy would be like, wait a minute. So so clearly, well, there's but no he's reason been for dealing that. with a guy who just showed up to meet him for this van wearing full like combat armor, like wielding a silenced and shooting, automatic weapon, shooting and a window shooting next to him and yeah. shooting the tire. I mean, so. Which obviously he had to replace that tire afterwards. No, he said it was airless tires. No, but he had to replace that tire because like it's falling apart. Like if you see that driving, you're like, oh, I guess I guess they're gonna think they're a bank thing. Yeah, but like a bank would would replace those tires. I don't know. I don't know, Mario. I mean, I think the other thing we need to talk about, and maybe we don't need to talk about it as much as everyone wants. To I think we need to talk more about Fred Melibin. Oh my god, I was I was honestly watching that, being like, what is happening? I thought for a second, what he, is happening? For a second there, I want him to be the villain. Yeah, I thought he I wanted, was going to be when I saw his name in like the thing. I was like, "Oh, that'd be cool." And which would have been nice. You ever see the film Twelve Rounds with John Cena no. and uh, Amy Smart, uh, the villain in? Oh, that. John Cena and Amy Smart. The villain Holy in that shit. is, um, oh god, I actually really like him. Um, it the villain in that film is Aiden Gillian, um, and he basically makes him go through New Orleans doing 12 rounds of, of challenges. It's a Rennie Harlan film. Oh, okay. There you go. I kind of wanted this to become a 12 rounds <laughs> sequel with Fred Melamond, like, taunting Mel Gibson. Or Fred Melamond turning into, like, the Al- turning in the Albert Brooks performance in Drive or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just, like, really chomping down on, like, the evilness. But, I mean, I think the thing we need to talk about um, is the the politics here. That, like, when everyone is writing about it, they are, like, it's, like, the first thing they talk about in the sense that it's, like, a, a concern. And Armand White even said it's a conservatives action movie. Um, I thought, when I, going into it, because I had read a bunch of reviews of it, that focused heavily on, you know, Mel Gibson's racism and, like, all this other stuff and how non-PC it is. And is this Craig, <clears throat> is this S. Craig Zeller's real politics or is he just trolling people or whatever? Um... That stuff is really not as prevalent as they make it seem like it is. I mean, no, and all it, that stuff seems fairly honest for like that type of character. I mean, the racism is, for one, for one, the thing that he did to that guy on that staircase, I didn't see as problematic at all. I but mean, that it's problematic in the got... nose, like the like the near breaking of the nose. The, the situation was definitely... But didn't you think it was going to be worse? Didn't you think it was going to be, like, way more racist? Well, I think it's to create that gray area. But what? 
I but found. But I think. But I just want to interrupt real quick because I think. But I think if he was going to create a gray area, if he was going to make Mel Gibson's character a super racist, you know, and that was going to be a big, th- that, like, which every of, which a lot of the reviews I've read kind of make it seem like he's a super racist. If we were going to make him a super racist, they would have had him annihilate that guy and he's then not, him perceive it as a gray area because that guy was a criminal that he annihilated. He's not a super ra- I don't see him as a super racist. In this. I don't I either. see him as being someone who's become a misanthrope in general. He, he says openly, like, these people deserve it. Like, not, but he's not even speaking about black people or Hispanic people. He says this in a way of... Vogelman and all. He wants to go kill somebody who clearly knows is a white person. Yeah. You know, he has just got to a point where he hates people. Um, and he's and got Calvert to- even says, like, what you did wasn't that bad, but it's bad enough to where it's going to be a six-week suspension. But Calvert is, is, well, then he is also the Don Johnson character. But then after that, he also says, like, I, you know, I've watched that video a bunch of times and you use too much iron. Yeah. Like, cast, type- cast, no. Cast iron. Cast iron, right. Which, Which then they use... They use the term. On his neck. They use the term cast iron again differently later on, like like in a different kind of pretense. I and I, I suddenly, really, I like what I thought was cast iron earlier, completely changed. Like I, I don't know what cast iron means now. Um, I just thought it was something I make pancakes on. But um, <laughs> they make a personal statement with that to say, like, you know, there has to be a certain sort of hardness or gruffness to the job. And Don Johnson's character had that. But he, more than that, knew how to pull back and knew how to still see the human element. Well, and so and, now, like Mel Gibson and Vince, even to the degree Vince Vaughn have kind of lost that kind of human element, and where now they're just. Well, Vince Vaughn's character I actually thought was pretty interesting, and I wish they had explored it more. And I think a different writer would have gone a little deeper into the fact that he had, um, you know, an African American girlfriend, or I think she was African American. Um, a minority and, girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't get the impression that. Um, I didn't get the impression that he felt the same way as Mel Gibson about anything. He just kind of was going along for the ride. You know what I mean? Like, there's perhaps a respect for, like, the years and quality of Mel Gibson's work. And so he... Or Ridgeman's work. And so he just kind of, um, you know, let him take the lead and just kind of fell in behind him. And, And his views were roughly similar to his and certain things, but... In reality, he didn't really feel the same way. So when his girlfriend is saying, oh, did you beat up any minorities today? Um, he was just, you know, he's not mad at her. He gets it. You know, he didn't, it's not like a thing that he's super into. Um, whereas Ridge, you get the impression that Ridgeman perhaps is taking out some of his frustrations on his life on, like, uh, people of color. Um, which his wife even says, like, I wasn't a racist until we moved into this neighborhood. Um and I was as liberal as any cop could be until, you know, we moved into this neighborhood and blah, blah, blah. But I feel like that's just a typical, like, modern American comment in the sense that our life didn't work out like we thought it was. And we've just got to find a scapegoat for it. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's definitely a story I don't think it was of, radical. No, it's definitely trying to be like this weird... It's trying to be this weird story of like a have versus have not. And what, what you do, do you play within the system? Do you play without, out of the system? Because um, even you know in that in that kind of weird oh, Jennifer Carpenter sequence um, where she's talking to her husband or you know or the father of her child where she says like I'm gonna go you know give my life away in my eight hours or whatnot for somebody I've never seen to put money 
rich people have put money where I'm never going to see it. And so it's trying to do this weird kind of like slight socioeconomic comment. It, it falls flat. It just doesn't work because mm. S. Craig Ziller is definitely more of a grindhouse sort of individual. Right. Carrying himself more with like the cool language well, and a- moments of ultra violence and... And to that end, Tension. I think Bone Tomahawk works better than this because I don't think he's got... I think he's got an interesting... Um, he has an interesting aesthetic in some kind, some cases, but he doesn't have a clear cinematic vision, I don't think. So Bone he has Tom- a voice, I think. I think he has a vision. I think his vi- films are visually appealing. I think he's got a rhythm. Um, I think he's got rhythm, a, a like nice rhythmically rhythm. Invi- but I don't appealing. know if he has a... I say he don't, I don't think he has a vision because I don't think this movie... So Bone Tomahawk benefits from the fact that it's an old-timey western and he's just shooting a desert most of the time. You know what I mean? And so if you put Kurt Russell going full-bore Kurt Russell in the desert, like, with people hacking stuff up... Um, and he's, that's got a great cast, too. Like, it's got, got a great Ricky cast. Jenkins. Except um, for a weird Patrick Wilson just <laughs> being Matthew, Patrick Wilson. Matthew Fox. Matthew Fox, Fox yeah. Really um, that's going to look good. You know what I mean? You're going you're gonna to make that movie and... If you have the skills that he clearly has, he's got some. He's got some skills, and if you have those skills and you make an, a western in the desert with that cast, it's gonna look. And it's gonna look pretty good. It, Dragged across the concrete though doesn't have that benefit because it's just a regular city, and so you're just kind of watching Mel Gibson seethe in front of what? <laughs> what do you call the the big orange thing? I'm gonna get some co- something to eat for the big orange. orange thing. And this is the problem that like um, brawl and cell block. 99 has until its last 30 minutes where they go to the actual cell block 99 prison area where kind of once again kind of falls back into like a western aesthetic like the it's a very old tiny sort of looking prison from like the turn of the century mm-hmm. um they're clean it's really it's a really clean look and this film's clean looking way too clean yes and I it's agree not even that. jarring in the sense um it's not even jarring in the sense of like the moments of violence or the moments of tent or the moments of of the, the sickness of the of the sociopaths, you know, contrasted, juxtaposed with the cleanness. It's just this clean, and then moments of violence, and a lot of that violence is pretty bloodless, like the the um, the shooting of the two kids in the car, or you know, the Asian market shooting. That those are pretty bloodless, violent action sequences. There's even, only really two somewhat gory sequences, and even when Mel Gibson wipes out like the rest of the villains, yeah, they're, it's quick shots. Like the only which I didn't think he was gonna do. Because there was after he killed the last guy, there was like another forty minutes of movie or something. Yeah, I thought. <laughs> like, I actually really thought Volgaman was going to survive that, and then like in a moment of revenge, him and Henry were going to like tie up Volgaman, mm. and then and do something. To no, do like some stuff no, to like drag him in the car across. And I thought the it was going to be yeah, and I thought like oh, this is going to be the scene where like it gets it's going to be a good gore, and like well, doesn't so, it's just like. Very quick deaths. And that's where I think... I I don't know how... If I find it powerful or if I find it a mistake in the sense that... Probably because there's no existential stakes to this. It's just clearly... My wife has MS. My daughter's getting assaulted. I need to move. Where Mel Gibson does Vince Vaughn is like, I need to have money to make a better better life for my girlfriend. To be be worthy of my girlfriend. Um, So in the end, I think that confrontation with Henry in the car should be a profound one in the sense that he, Mel Gibson has had the opportunity to grow in the way that Don Johnson had kind of told him that he should be growing. Um, you know, being, being less of a misanthrope and, and looking more at like the general good in people. But 
and he doesn't, and then Henry kills him for it because he doesn't trust him. Um, but that's definitely not on the table by the time no, he gets it's, to that it's point. No, it's not even... Like, there's even... no... Because he hasn't been thinking about that at all. It's just been percentages and getting the money, and that's... And it's not even an argument about his, like, misanthropy at that point, or the fact that he hasn't grown. Like, that's been fairly forgotten by that point. Right. And then you still have another fifth, like, ten minutes after that of Henry rounding it around with that Safari video game, showing that he was able to survive because he hit out and didn't go full full force with the violence. Like, that's kind of like the weird point that this film tries to make with the bookmarking, is this Safari video game where he's, you know, trying to kill all the lions early on realizes that that gets you killed. And so in the end, he's hiding while the shootout's going on. It only shows up when he can get the true like target. Yeah. And, and like then in that shows you in the end, you're just like, this, I don't care about this. With all that said, though, it's engaging. It does not, for me, feel like 156 minutes. And I don't know if that's a point of the editing or if that's a point of like it the fact that... It can't be a point of the editing because the, I, editing, I, yeah, it's is, not, the it's editing, not is editing is as haphazard well. as everything else in this It's movie. just, it, it, maybe there's a... a there's a cadence in the sense of the moments that are intriguing to look at or the moments that are, not look at, but the moments that are intriguing to listen to, you know, where, where you kind of like blend into the dialogue going on, even as stilted and weird as the dialogue is, um, mixed with those really odd sequences happen in such a decent frequency that you never find yourself looking at your watch. Um, I agree with you. I mean, there was long stretches where I was just, I was in it and I don't know if that's a, Tori Kittle's thing, I found it happened more when he was on the screen. Yeah, yeah I would agree. Because um, I think he was excellent in this movie. Um, uh, even though you th- you think that Jennifer Carpenter scene's pointless, I think it's a nice little kind of weird quasi-break, almost. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I get, it's a nice kind of like... I get it. I just don't know if it's the... the it almost... You know what it reminded me of? And you had mentioned Stephen King before. It reminded me of one of those Stephen King like character digressions where like he introduces a new character like three quarters of the way oh, into yeah. the movie and spends 20 pages kind of detailing their entire life up to this moment. I thought you were going to talk. And then they <laughs> die walking into a store. Yeah. Like as they're walking into the store, you get their life story. And then whatever, the, whatever the villain of the book is just kind of like wipes them off the page. And you're just like, why, why did that happen? This, yeah. Why did I just read that? I thought you were going to say where you are introduced to a character, talk to that character for a while. Then you get a, four-page dream sequence of them getting masturbated by their English well, that's, teacher. That's, I'm sure we'll talk about that later in the podcast. When we <laughs> the, talk. The Stephen King oh, I forgot Needful Things is on both of our lists. Um, it was... I don't get it. I don't... I don't it's weird. I don't it's 100% weird understand why. I don't... I'm not going to watch it again. I know I'm that. definitely not going to watch it again. Uh, that's, that's the thing about S. Craig Ziller. He doesn't... Um, and like He's compared to Jeremy Solonet a lot. I think Jeremy Solonet is a lot better of a director. Yeah. Because he has... I, I've seen Green Ruin, Green Room and Blue I mean, Ruin Hold the Dark's times. not a success, but it's a better... It's a better movie. It's a better made movie than this movie. Mm-hmm. But this movie, I found myself... I've definitely... Wrapped way more engaged with this movie than I did with... Hold the Dark. Hold the Dark. Yeah. And Hold the Dark is, you know, 20, 30 minutes shorter. And Hold the Dark probably has $20 more million to play with than this movie did. Well, I think Hold the Dark might actually be around $60 million. So, And this is a $15 million production. Yeah. Which I, actually is kind of funny because I don't know where that $15 million was spent. To Mel Gibson. Maybe. 
Who is who is His good? Alcohol budget. And it's funny because Mel Gibson, as a human, I guess, is a really problematic person. But I I do want to see him act. Like I do like watching him do crazy stuff because he's good at it, and it it, it is it looks good on screen. Mel Gibson looks good on screen. Even did you see that per, that trailer they released for the Sean Penn movie he made about the dictionary? Oh, I almost made a. I almost for our transition. If we were going to talk about the Variety article, I was going to go from the Oxford Dictionary to make. Speaking of Professor and the Mad Men, yeah, because that is about the Oxford Dictionary, which looks crazy, yeah. and kind of good, <laughs> except for the fact that like his, the man who co-wrote uh, Apocalyptico with him directed it, and then randomly, I guess Mel Gibson's like, we're not going to talk about this man directing it now. Well, because Icon wanted Final Cut. And the guy didn't want to give it to him. No. So, whatever that means. Wipe him off the face of the earth. But I just like how Braveheart is coming back as the guy that made the dictionary. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because it's the same accent. Um, right. Yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's worth a watch for as a curiosity. Um, because I mean, it was 99 cents on Voodoo to rent. It was 99 cents for me on Google Play because I had a special. There you go. You win. Um... But I probably would have paid like six bucks for it if that's what it cost. Because it was a, it was an interesting movie. It was interesting. I mean, it wasn't great. It's not a great film. It's not going to be on any of my end of year lists. Maybe Tori Kittles creeps in if it's a weak, like supporting actor year. But like, uh, I could yeah. I, it's not, I mean, I it's. it's I will really find strange. a way. I will find and nominate five people from a combination of us and High Flying Bird before I think I nominate <laughs> anybody dread across concrete. Right, I'm just uh, he is like the one guy yeah. that would that if it was if it's a weak year, then I would say like nah, okay maybe best best sandwich maybe look like a good sandwich. He was really enjoying it. I made me want to eat a sandwich. Kind of, that's true. Made me want to eat a sandwich too. See, this film driving then, across concrete while eating a super set of sandwich. Yeah, yeah. We're right back with uh, my number sixty nine. I assume. I'm a man of habit. <laughs> and I was a boy of habit. Every year on New Year's, I excitedly watched the grand old sci-fi Twilight Zone marathon. Leading up to New Year's and in New Year's. Why? I just really liked watching all those Twilight Zone episodes in the years before you had the opportunity to watch Twilight Zone uh-huh. on whatever streaming service you could use or on YouTube illegally, you cheap bastards. <laughs> you could, you had to wait and see your favorite episodes on Sci-Fi. Similarly, on Father's Day and I believe Memorial Day, FX and Spike. TV, oh, Spike. which I don't believe exists anymore. I don't think it does either. Would do a run-through of the James Bond series. And my father was a big James Bond fan, mm-hmm. and he introduced me to James Bond films. And I like them. I like the James Bond movies a tremendous amount. They make a very big impression on my enjoyment of very corny, very popcorn-heavy, very nonsense very outdated, very ridiculous looking, very poorly acted at times, very underwhelming at times, very overwhelming at times, cinema. But I always 
had reservations about enjoying Bond films, especially since the last Bond film to come out before I graduated high school was Die Another Day. Was that the one that I was at, like the story I told you? I believe, that, yeah, this is the one. Was the iceberg? The, the iceberg epic. The, the tank iceberg chase? Yes. And the over the iceberg, yeah. That's a good one. Um, with the worst Bond song in history, Die Another Day by Madonna. Think Don't day. sing it. It brings up bad memories. In 2006, Martin Campbell came out with Casino Royale. And it gave me a lot of hope, because I enjoy Casino Royale quite a bit. It's a really entertaining, fun action movie that does a lot of things right. But in the end... Like parkour. Yeah. <laughs> Bond that can do parkour. And who's chasing somebody... <laughs> who's who a parkour do, expert? Who also, he needs for some reason, but once he finds him, he just executes him. And it doesn't really ever say why he executed him. To have his backpack. Because there was a bomb in it and a cell phone. But it makes it seem like he needs him for some other reason. And in the end, he just kind of executes him. Whatever. Reasons like that are why Casino Royale just didn't hit that level for me. Quantum of Solace then came out in 2008, and I was like, oh, Bond's going back to where it was. It's a poor, mangled mess of a film that's still fun to watch because of Gemma Arbiton. 2012, however, was the dawning of the moment where I realized that the Age of Aquarius was upon us. But it was Sam Mendes' first try at a Bond film. And he chose the greatest cinematographer of our modern age, Roger Deakins, to compose his film. He got a tremendous actor to portray the main villain, which is he then kind of ruined the next year with Spectre. But we'll talk about, we don't have to talk about Spectre. My number 69 is 2012 Skyfall. <laughs> It's gone. You both know what's at stake here. There isn't much road left. Take the bloody shot. What do you say about a man like that? Three months ago, you lost the drive containing the identity of every agent embedded in terrorist organizations across the globe. 007, reporting for duty. Where the hell have you been? Enjoying death. I only have one question. Why not stay dead? Bond, as I said, is a very important part of my life. But one where I wanted to call it good cinema. One where I wanted to be proud of it. Mm -hmm. And I never could be. And Skyfall, for all of its eccentricities... For all of its weird little moments, for all of its goofiness that encapsulates the James Bond film, is still cinematically a great film to look at. Oh, a yeah. fucking amazing film to look at. Roger Deakins' third best composited film, in my opinion. Do you want to tell us what the first two are or no? Number... Or will we talk about them later? Um, no. Number two would be Blade Runner 2049. Number one would be the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. What was that face about? Was that face? No, I was oh. looking something up in my face. <laughs> I was like, those would be my top two. Um, no Country for Old Men would be four mm -hmm. for me. Um, but mostly this film's on my list because it is 
just gorgeous to look at. It is directed extremely well. It's extremely, not necessarily tight, but it has a high amount of competence, a high amount of authority. Mm. There's a control in its direction of its actors and its direction of its moments. The stakes are way more reserved than they have or than they were for any Bond film outside maybe Man with a Golden Gun. Which there's like no really no stakes in Man with a Golden Gun. There's a guy with a golden gun and he has some sort of spy satellite. It doesn't really matter. Christopher Lee's a good villain though. It has a really intriguing but still otherworldly villain who's played with such crazy conviction mm. by Javier Bardem. Bardem. Um and I watched this movie and went 50 years it took to create a Bond movie that you could look at and say was a great film. Mm-hmm. And now it's my, it would be my reduction to anybody who wants to ever see a Bond film to be like, this is the top. This is the best it's going to be. But if you enjoyed this and you had fun with how ridiculous and silly this movie can be at times, here's some other movies. If you don't, yeah, just watch something else. Watch the Mission Impossible films. <laughs> I mean, but it's not... It's ridiculous that its silliness comes from the fact that it is a James Bond movie. So yes, it has exactly. all that weird James Bond like world building inside of it, like with M and Q and all this other stuff, and like the agents, and oh, it was a former agent, and you did something you weren't supposed you to do. Accidentally and so now ate you a have... cyanide pill, and now you got some weird grotesque face thing that which was, was kind awesome. of fun to do, but but like you know, Ray Fiennes trying to kind of take over the thing. It's like, well, why just let him take it over? Who cares? Well, why? Yeah. Because M's supposed to be a woman, or is a woman, or like is the woman that they've had for the last two movies? Like, why do we care? Who gives a shit? More, more than two movies. Was she more than two movies? Goldeneye. Oh, that's right. That's true. She's been there forever. Yeah. Who fucking cares? Just I, <laughs> who gives a shit? I I mean I, uh, long time okay, fan. But like from someone. So if you're just saying like. Just kind of like you said, oh. for people that like for no, the exactly. uninitiated, nobody. They when you're watching care. it, you'd be like, when they're talking about the Bond stuff, you'd be like, who gives a who cares? Just what's he supposed to stop this guy? Right? Just let him fucking stop him. What? Why? Are we, what's with all the protocol and the parliamentary? Like, you know, hearings and stuff like this. Who cares? Just just a spy. Let them do spy shit. Um, But when they're not doing that, it's kind of an awesome movie. Yeah. I mean, and everything you said is 100% right. Roger Deakins um, works harder, I think, than I've ever seen him work at anything. No. To make this movie, like, of like a piece of art like a heavy piece of art you know what i mean like all of those shots and i don't i, I don't know off the top of my head who did the production design on this but it feels like roger deakins really did the production design a lot of moments well because it's coming it's designed perfectly for him yes and so one of the things we complained a lot about 2049 about is the idea that he's a lot of what a lot of the great shots in 2049 are these kind of establishing shots and they're not the the shots where he's doing the where the movie's doing the work, it's just kind of regular. It's just kind of regular shots. I think that's where you get someone like Sam. To a degree. There's some moments where there's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why, like, 2049 slightly topples it for me in the sense that... Um, well, 2049 is so, such he, a heavy movie. Yeah, but when he... when he, 
settles down, like that ending fight sequence, mm-hmm. it, like that's so well shot and well framed. That, but I think it's funny because this movie, but it's not doing a lot. This like, movie needed, and I, maybe I'm gonna just go by what you said. James Bond needed Sam Mendes. It needed a theatrical director, and it needed someone like Roger Deakins to kind of push it out of its own way and turn it into something else, which is not just kind of like a, look, we're, we're elegant because we wear tuxedos and we shoot, you know, PPKs and, and I have cufflinks that also shoot some things and, oh, look, there's an Aston Martin or whatever that the car is. That also shoots PPKs. Um, Literal PPKs, yeah. not bullets. <laughs> just the guns, shoots guns <laughs> at people. Um, it's like, oh, what can, let's make the whole universe that he operates in elegant. Let's make all the shots elegant. There's let's a, make the camera movements elegant. Let's make everything elegant. Like, why are we just stopping at, like, just the idea of Bond as attributable to some kind of old-fashioned elegance. Like, we don't have to be old-fashioned. We could be newfangled. We can be modern and just as elegant, if not more elegant, than those old movies. And the color composition on this is just It's really fascinating. great. It's a lot of really deep yellows and to the point where To the point where the blacks almost seem like they're glowing. Yes. Like all those, um, those China sequences, those dark nights are, like... And not just because of the colors, like the red and the yellow and the oranges, like on the lights and stuff like that. Um, but the night seems like it's glowing. Mm-hmm. It's and it's a it's a, a really interesting. I, I, I hate Bond, so but so when I was watching that, I was like, whoa. I would argue, um, for me personally, the sequence where he's coming into the casino on on the boat is one of the most beautiful shots in film. For me, his like history, hmm. not in terms of, and this is one of those moments where it's not cinematography. It's not a Kurosawa film where the cinematography's doing work for the the sake of the production. It's one of the most beautiful shots, and just like you want to hang that on a wall, yeah, like you want a GIF form of that picture, you know, on the wall. It's it's not really doing anything, but it adds to that elegance. It, it does in the sense of it adds to the mystique, it adds to the elegance, it adds to the. Not necessarily hubris; it adds to the the essence of of Bond. Well, the early that the first you know the opening motorcycle chase across like the rooftops looks like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, like which is the most elegant movie ever, which I know because I just watched it, um, with my kids, and um, it's just floating. Like the way that they shot that, and the way that like there is a Sam real Mendy- efference to this efference, effervescence, effervescence. There's a real effervescence to this film. Mm. There, there's like a, a a mystique almost, not a mystique. There's a real like almost not necessarily mysticism, a mystique to it. It's it's very it's a much more spiritual endeavor than like any of the other. Because so I watched Casino Royale because on Netflix I didn't have to pay for it, and I watched a bunch of Spectre, which sucked. Spectre is. Um, and I watched, you know, I had my weirdo experience at and it's uh, ug- it's at an ugly. Spectre's day. an ugly movie, too. Well, Spectre just is so heavy-handed with all of the Bond shit. It's like, oh, yes, this is exactly what we needed coming off of um, Skyfall. We needed a Bond mythology-heavy movie um, with Christoph Waltz just talking. Yeah, oh, that's really powerful and great. 
and stabbing James Bond in the head with needles and then having him be fully capacitated to fight some people immediately after being stabbed in the head with a huge needle. That's supposed to be some extreme form of torture, so much so that Christoph Waltz has a, a, a whole room devoted to this torture machine that's run through computers and all this other stuff, and it hurts James Bond so little that he can just do stuff afterwards. He can just do a backflip out of yeah. his chair and do some bunch of shit. And what's, what's nice about this is there's, like, while in Skyfall, he's still this otherworldly sort of creature. There's, like, in the sense of the shots he takes or the things that happen to him sure, would sure. kill a normal person. There's a little more of an attempt to humanize, to, to make him a bit more human or uh, not the, relatable. His, his but, emotions, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. There, there's, a, there's a real, you know, coming, especially off of Casino Royale, that, Quantum of Souls doesn't do any work in terms of like making him care about Vesper. Like mm-hmm. it's it's there, but it's so hollow. Um, this is actually kind of like this feels like a direct sequel to Casino Royale, emo- emotionally more well, than Quantum of Souls. Well, I think did. from the sense like from the first from the opening scene or just after the opening scene of of Casino Royale, where M chews out Bond for like how he approaches his job. Like, you kind of have to get rid of your ego. Um, you know, you're just supposed to do what you're supposed to do. Um, and how this movie kind of goes right in... This steers right into that, in the sense that Javier Bardem's character was kind of chastised or held back or was expe- was thought expendable because he was doing things his own way. In the same way that Bond was also kind of seems to be doing things his own way he has his own methods he has his own attitude towards um the job that he's supposed to be doing um or what's important um and it was interesting to make a bond movie about that like being bond like what does it mean to be what does it mean to be bond but if i had a problem with double with skyfall it's that like after everything so you know he goes back to his home to fight Javier Bardem's henchmen, of which there are just a lot, just seems like too many. Like, I, I, my problem with all these movies that there's henchmen involved is that like, I feel like there always has to be an ethos attached to the henchman. Like, you have to believe in him. I guess he's paying you, but don't you also have to believe in him? What is Javier Bardem's ethos? I never understand what these guys are doing. That these people are just like, I'll follow that guy. They don't seem like cult leaders. No, they just seem like bad guys who's just like yeah that guy makes a lot of sense I'll, I'll do what he wants which they try to like retcon not retcon but they try to explain inspector with that stupid they're all part of specter and it's like no don't don't do that <laughs> yeah. specter um but then even at the end james bond's just like oh yeah i guess i do whatever i want but i will risk everything to save M. even though she's been pretty shitty to me and to but you know javier bradem's character and I don't know. For a movie, for there's two, a matronness to her. For a, a series of two movies that seems to be really obsessed with the question of what a double O agent is, it seems pretty easy to go back to being like, "Well, we're just we just serve. We're just there to protect. We just we gotta do it. It's our job. We protect M. We protect, you know, England. Blah blah blah." Um, especially one that opens with Daniel Craig's Bond doing shots with a scorpion on his hand because he just needs to relax. 
That's how I relax. That's how you we, we relax on Tuesday night. Yeah. With scorpion shots. I think the the final comment should be talk. Um, thing I really want to mention is going back to our nice little conversation about how much we don't care too much about the Oscars. Um, <laughs> We're going to talk about that in a little bit, too. But the cinematographer, Christopher Doyle, uh, you know, known for Chunking Express, Happy Together, In the Mood for Love, 2046, works often with uh, Wong Kar Wai. Um, after the, uh, the Oscar went to Life of Pi, said, Okay, I'm trying to work out how to say this most politely. And no offense to, I don't know him personally, but what a total fucking piece of shit. Let me be blunt. Ah, fuck, I don't care. I'm sure he's a wonderful guy, and I'm sure he cares so much. But since 97% of the film is not under his control, what the fuck are you talking about cinematography? Sorry. I'm sorry. I have to be blunt, and I don't care. You can write it. I think it's a fucking insult to cinematography. Speaking, of course, of Claudio Miranda's win for Life of Pi. I f- it was uh, purple, Mario. Agree. It was purple. Isn't Life that of good? Pi is, and, and people would argue to the end of the day that there was a lot of work that's done in Life of Pi by Claudio Miranda, and of course there is. There, there has, there is a real sense of he had to imagine what was going to be shot. He, he had, had to had imagine this, what the computer artists were going to do later. And so there is a lot of necessity in terms of composing the shots in relation to the lighting that was going to be done with the visual effects in relations to what he was going to see. You're being very generous. But it's a joke. That <laughs> super Skyfall joke. <laughs> loses to this film. Skyfall, one of the most beautiful movies of the decade. That Django Unchained, which isn't a great-looking movie, um, but a pretty good-looking film at points, loses to this. Lincoln, which also isn't a great-looking movie, it's better than loses Life to Life of Pi. Which, by the way, Life of Pi, for anybody that wonders, there is no a real opinion about this. It's, it's objective fact. That movie sucks. That's, that's one of the worst movies of the decade. Well, because no one's... One uh, of the worst movies that people say is a good movie. I think it's weird, too, that like nobody's seen Life of Pi. I didn't even know anyone that saw Which, it by the won way, Oscars. If, if you haven't seen Life of Pi, I strongly urge you to continue on that course of life. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're ever reincarnated, I, I, the one thing I want you to remember in your next life... Write it down on a piece of paper. Yeah. Put it somewhere. Is I, You should dedicate your life to telling future generations to forget about Life of Pi. Yeah, Life of Pi was so awful. I mean, what... The most amazing thing to me about the Skyfall cinematography is that it's so clean. Yeah. It is pristine. Even when it's dirty. Like even yeah. when like they go to Javier Bardem's hideout on the island and there's there's still a dirtiness to it, but there's a there's a control. There's such control in this film. Well, I don't have an HD TV, but it l- looked like I was watching it on HD. Like the whole. Do you have an HG TV? I have an yeah, <laughs> I do have an HG TV. Um, it's the color scheme matches my you know the color of the room. And There's always Property Brothers just in the corner. <laughs> I do I do keep replicas of the Property Brothers. Anthropomorphic. Page from uh, Trading Spaces is just always narrating your life. I don't, is that HGTV Trading Spaces? 
That's TLC. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't watch that. I, I, did. I knew it was a thing. Yeah, I did. Um, did did Roger Deakins do any episodes of Trading Places? I hope Trading so. Spaces? No, but he might make the remake of Trading Places. That would be which awesome. Would be great. Sam Mendes um, Trading Places. What quickly too? Uh, I gotta say, also the second best Bond theme for me. The no, third best Bond theme. For no, me. it's terrible. Really? You There's no terrible? such thing as a good Bond theme. They're all bad, except for Live and Let Die. Yeah, Live and Let Die is easily number one. And for so when I was in a, I was in a band called the Villains. Did you ever see the Villains? I did not. So with this guy John Paul. <laughs> Yeah, with this guy John Paul and this guy Bob, um, I played. Where does John Paul live now? Where did he go? I think he lives in Boston. Boston. Yeah, I think he lives in Boston. So he always joked that the best Bond theme song was the theme song to Octopussy by Elvis Costello, which isn't true. He didn't do the theme song. (laughs) I was like, like, wait, what? But he always used to sing like, "Wrap your tentacles around me, Octopussy." Um, But he wrote a Bond song called "The Ties That Bond," and it's. Fucking amazing. It's perfect. It's a perfect Bond song. And that's the best Bond theme song ever. And then Live and Let Die. And then the Not Real Octopussy, which just has that one verse. And then nothing. They're like, all stupid. I like Skyfall. I really like uh, You Know My Name by, by Cornell. Oh my god. God, really? Well, because it, it incorporates, it really incorporates the oh, James Bond theme in it. That's a terrible song. And uh, a little, a little duty, little, little, little song you might know. A little, little, little tune you might know. Yeah. Oh, oh God, oh God, people, ignore this, ignore this. YouTube no, commercial. <laughs> Duran Duran, A View to a Kill. That's pretty good. Yeah, you have to admit that. I mean, it's also bad, but it's it is okay. You know, he's he's right. Tom is actually right. It's all the all these songs are pretty bad. We'll be right back with Tom's number sixty nine. Welcome back. Um, before we get going with my number 69, I just want to introduce um, a new beer to the episode. Um, we brought an actual local beer. Um, it's one of my faves. It is uh, Berkshire Brewing Company's Steel Rail Extra Pale Ale. Um, Berkshire, uh, South Deerfield, Massachusetts. I right? don't know where that is, but I'm assuming near it's a the day Berkshire trip. Mountain. Oh, no, day definitely. Trip, right? Um, it might even be a, it's, a, a morning trip. That's true. I've just found this beer very drinkable and delicious and light and, you it's know. It's got like a forward harshness, but like it's got it's got a really malty harshness to it in the beginning, but it kind of like, it's it's nice. And well, it's got that and, kind of, so, it, I mean, if it was me and there it was. It feels like it's high ABV for me. I, I've always thought that too, but it's an extra, I've always assumed because it was an extra pale ale and because it drinks like. Um, I like the feel of the can. Like a chugging beer, you know what I mean? That you would drink like 10 of these, or you'd play beer pong with it or you something. You should not drink 10 beers in a row, ladies and gentlemen. We've definitely never done that, so we wouldn't be speaking from experience. Um, um, you should also not go to East Rock Brewing and accidentally drink five beers. After not really drinking <laughs> uh, for, for many weeks. Um, but I love this. I love this beer. Um, this is one of the ones I like to have around. Um, they sell it in cases, which is awesome. So instead of buying something shitty, 
um, like a Bud Light or a Coors Light or something. Just buy this. It's only a 5.2%. There you go. It's still decent. Still a little more than sessionable or crushable, but not, not too terrible in terms of... I'm crushing this one. So it's perfectly crushable, which is problematic. You know, it also could be crushed. Your heart. And you might have to walk a quarter of a mile. Yeah. Out of, out of the jungle with your number 69. Right? Of, I don't know. I could, I could have to do that. Um, my number 69 is... What was that? A motorcycle? A motorcycle just <laughs> drove the studio. <laughs> That's unbelievable. This is a ghost rider. Um, my number 69 is Apocalypse Now. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 Vietnam War pick. This is the end, beautiful friend. I've been a soldier since I was 19, and I still haven't learned how to wait for it. I wanted a mission for my sins, and they gave me one. Nobody had ever gone on a mission like it before, and when it was over, I never won another one. Yeah. Got nominated for seven Oscars, it won two for best cinematography for Vittorio Storaro, uh, and uh, back in the seventies they did sound as just one Oscar for like the sound, um, but it got nominated for picture, director, supporting actor for Robert Duvall, adapted screenplay, art direction, and editing, and in the same way that Mario was talking about how Oscars are silly, uh, Apocalypse Now lost. Picture and director and actor. Well, it was nominated for actor. Um, to Kramer versus Kramer. Oh boy, that all-time classic monument to the power of cinema. The divorce movie. <laughs> Kramer versus Kramer. Um, that movie. That movie really stinks. Kramer versus Kramer is a terrible movie. Maybe it's not I like, bad, I like, like objectively. No, but I like Meryl can... Streep in it. Um, but, I never liked Dustin Hoffman. But Meryl Streep was always good back then. Yeah. That was one of those things. Like, it didn't make any difference what Meryl Streep did. She was just blowing the doors off of all these movies. Yeah, Kramer versus Kramer is ridiculous. The fact that it would beat Apocalypse Now in anything is ridiculous. Um, this did win the Palme d'Or, though. It did. But it tied it with the Tin Drum. I've never seen the Tin Drum. you never seen the Tin Drum? Yes, the Tin Drum. I went through a Gunter Gas phase with... It, uh, my mid twenties, so I was big into the tin drum. Um, but it's funny because it won the Palm Door, and it was a working cut of the movie. <laughs> he wasn't even done with it. Um, I first came to Apocalypse Now in two thousand one. I was nineteen years old. Um, with the release of the Apocalypse Now Redux, uh, I was working at a record store that sold DVDs, and I was really—I had like a severe DVD fetish. For packaging, you ever do you, you have a packaging fetish? No, I did um, with Criterion releases. Oh yeah, when I was in my teens. We're going to talk teens. about packaging fetishes later. Um, there was a uh, I forget which movie studio Naked it was. Lunch. I, I look at I used to look at the Naked Lunch Criterion cover regularly. Yeah, it's good. It's a good cover. For me, it was the um, the Fight Club double disc like release that like was wrapped in paper. Was like it was like heavy, it like weighed something significant, and I was um, obsessed with it. Um, but this came into the store, and um, 
I, you know, so it was 2001, so I had just seen like a bunch of movies, and I was like, oh, I gotta see this movie too. This is a movie I gotta see. Um, and I watched it, and it's funny, and I was thinking about this today. I was thinking about the best way to word this today. Nothing that I had seen up until Apocalypse Now prepared me for Apocalypse Now. But Apocalypse, having seen Apocalypse Now when I did, prepared me for seeing a lot of other movies. Um, I can't tell you exactly in what part of it inspired my love of what other future viewing experience, but I was so shaken by it. And I think one of the reasons I'm really attached to this movie is because like I had seen The Deer Hunter um, already, and I knew that The Deer Hunter was a good movie, but it didn't really do anything for me like emotionally we kind of talked about this with episode zero like the deer hunters this year is one of those movies that i saw when i was too young to see the deer hunter and to understand it properly um and i knew it was i just you could tell that it was really really good but apocalypse now just kind of kicks me in the chest and every time i see it um it's just a mind blower and I guess Francis Ford Coppola designed it to blow your mind. You know what I mean? With the colors and the sound and the pace and the subject matter and, like, you know, the volume at which Martin Sheen whispers his his interior dialogue to himself. Um, it's just supposed to fuck with your head, and it works. Every single time I see it, I'm just like, holy shit. And it's not... It's not the stereotypical times, although it is the stereotypical times. Um, it's all the times they don't talk about when they write about this movie. So even in Roger Ebert's great movie review, he talks about just the amazing Robert Duvall performance. Um, and, you know, he's like, oh, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. But that's not even the best fucking part of that speech. The best part of that speech is, like, right after that, when he's... There, you know, he's kneeling on the ground, and you know, all the smell of napalm morning. It smells like victory, and then he says to Willard, "Someday this war's gonna end." And that that razor, that like defeat in his voice. Yeah, too. and he just gets That's up great. and That's walks the best. away. That is the best. And it's, best. And it's every time I watch it, I'm just like, holy. <laughs> just like oh my god i mean so i don't know who doesn't know the story of apocalypse now but um martin sheen plays uh benjamin willard and he's been sent upstream um up river into cambodia to assassinate uh colonel walter kurtz played by marlon brando who is a highly decorated um officer in the united states military but who has kind of disappeared off the map and is running his own kind of indigenous army um, and just pulling off assassinations and killings and all these missions and things. Um, he has taken up, up river on a boat piloted by um, Albert Hall playing chief. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne playing clean is on the boat. Um, Sam Bottoms playing Lance, who's a surf champion, is on the boat. You have an amazing, amazing, amazing Frederick Forrest playing Chef. Um, Frederick Forrest, who would also be nominated for uh, an Academy Award for Supporting Actor for a different movie that year, which is it was a good year to be Frederick Forrest. Um, and just kind of moving through Vietnam. 
And this is, he started filming this, I think, one year after Vietnam ended. So he started filming it in 1976. He shot it, I believe, in Cambodia um, with the assistance of like the Cambodian military whose helicopters they used, but who had to sometimes fly away to go on a mission for the government sometimes. Um, it is an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which I have tried to read probably 50 times and I've never been able to get into it. I'm just same. not a Conrad it's, guy. It's, it's, it's laborious. Um, in the same way, I'm not like an Upton Sinclair guy. Like I've always tried. These are like... Well, I love the jungle, but... So I've never been able to do it. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Something about like the nature of the language has always kind of like been a, a barrier to me to getting into these movies. Um, but I just fucking love it. It's so exciting. It's like, um, yeah, and it's funny because we talked about Bridge on the River Kwai, you know, however many episodes ago. And this, this has always kind of, they've always seemed like cousins of each other. In the sense that I guess this is the movie that David Lean may have been able to make 20 years later. You know what I mean? With a way bigger budget. And just remaking these sets over and over and over again. And just blowing them the fuck up. Um, what is your... I know you've said you're not like a super Coppola fan. No. I, and, and, this is... Is a good movie. Like it's it's a great movie. I, I can't deny that. It's one. It's, this is gonna be one of those instances where I would clearly say it's a great film. Um, it is not my sort of movie. Coppola is not my guy. He has a cadence to his films that I find dull. Mm-hmm. Um, not dull. Lethargic. Um, I'm very much a person who's drawn by cadence. Who's very much drawn by the rhythm in which a film moves. One of the films that is in my 30s that is my most recent film mm-hmm. on this list, um, I 100% have my list just because I love the cadence of that film. Um, and his cadence is, it's too poetic. I, I think that's mm. one of the reasons you love it. Uh, it lingers yeah, in, yeah, in the yeah, quiet. Yeah. And that's fine in, in certain moments. Um, you know, with, with Kilgore, especially that scene in Kilgore where he kind of like lingers for a second. Um, after mentioning something, the war is going to be over, but there's a lot of that, especially like in later scenes talking about like surfing on the helicopter. There's like a lot of quietness to that and kind of like s- silence to that mm-hmm. and, and a moment to let you in- ingest. Um, that works depending on the audience watching it. That, that works depending on the, the people seeing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see this in, in Godfather and Godfather part two, that the, are these, these moments of something being said, um, that have a, a good punch to them, have a profoundness to them, that tell you a lot in the silence about character motivations, about character thoughts. But I am absolutely a person who wants a consistency in, in storytelling. Uh, 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 not consistency. Who wants a um, alertness and urgency in the story mm. to to carry forward. I, I'm not a Mad Men guy, as I always say. Mad oh, Men okay. lingers in, in, in the character and the plot. I'm I like it's, Mad it's, Men. It's a lot I like the it's first a lot, three it's a lot of Mad Men. Worse show to mention, but I'm more of a lost guy in the sense of drawing the plot is always the ultimate measure of a film. And right. And 
Coppola, no, he creates great plots, but plots are always in service of these people he creates. And well, that's why Apocalypse Now and Godfather and his films in general just don't work It's for funny me. because I've never been a Godfather guy. I always liked, I love Apocalypse Now. It's the only Coppola movie on my list. But if I had to put, like, if I was making, if I was extending the list, the conversation would be before either of the Godfather no, movies. No, conversation would be yeah, on my list as um, well. If only because... I mean, I don't know how you feel about Vietnam movies. I think we have Bram Stoker's jacket would also be because so yeah. it's fun. I've always imagined Bram Stoker's jacket. I've always imagined Bram, Stoker, Bram, Bram Stoker's Dracula being called Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, which I, I think is what it is. <laughs> I think is that the is that the official title of it? Maybe um, it is. I don't know. No, it's just it's it's officially called Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, I remember, like on the original, one of the original covers. It wasn't the, the theatrical release poster, but one of the covers maybe for the video release is like Francis Ford Coppola, and then like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. Well, it's like all every Stephen King novel now says Stephen King is huge as you can probably get it, and then the title is kind of skew somewhere else. Yeah. Um, Except for it, it still has a pretty big. Uh, it, it's got a pretty big cover. The title. The original it, or the new it? Because the new it, I guess, is yeah, fairly. Is fairly um, proportional. Um, it's funny because my favorite Vietnam movies are these kinds of Vietnam movies. And did you go through a Vietnam period at all when you were like a kid slash adolescent slash young adult? I did not. Oh, see, I did. I went through like a heavy Vietnam. I was kind of not like obsessed with the Vietnam War, but I was really big into like um, dispatches, like Michael Hur's dispatches. I read that a lot. Um, I I was more into the American response of the sol- of the American soldier to World War Two was my okay thing. like like Vonnegut's the ugh, ugh. Vonnegut it's through my mouth a little bit <laughs> um, so it goes yeah <laughs> pivotal books that'll be after we do pivotal films we'll do I do pivotal... it we lose, we lose we lose our twenty viewers um, oh god we actually become uh, popular then. <laughs> It's like, oh no, it's their thing. Them talking for three hours about books. Um, or no, I didn't finish that book, so I can't talk about it. Um, so let's say we do pivotal adult film. My two favorite Vietnam movies are. <laughs> it's the last. <laughs> pivotal adult film is just the last adult film you saw. No, no, no it was really good. <laughs> I liked it a lot. Um, my two favorite Vietnam movies are this and Thin Red Line. Because they are the quietest, and they're the most meditative, and they are the ones that aren't telling you exactly how one group versus another group feels about the Vietnam War, or but still has something to say about the nature of what Vietnam was about. You know what I mean? So I'm talking like... Full Metal Jacket and Casualties of War and The Killing Fields and Platoon. Um, and a lot of those movies have the unfortunate... Oh, we, won't, we won't ever talk about Full Metal Jacket on this podcast. No, I know. I think we've already talked about the fact that we're going to talk about Full Metal Jacket on this podcast. Um, Full Metal Jacket is interesting in the same, in the same way that like um, Casualties of War is and the same way Platoon is. And that they have... Um, uh, what, about, what about Tunnel Rats? Have you seen that? I haven't seen the Uwe Boll film. No, I haven't seen it. We'll have to, we'll have to do a bonus episode of Tunnel Rats. Um, they have, they all have, they all take a page out of the Apocalypse Now handbook, which is they have a viewer, 
they have a, a, an audience um, stand-in in the form of Willard. But the difference between those movies and Apocalypse Now is that Willard has seen some shit. Willard is not like a new guy on the scene, like Charlie Sheen in Platoon is, like Michael J. Fox in Casualties of War is, like Matthew Modine in Full Metal Jacket is. They're just guys who find themselves in Vietnam and are just looking around horrified at what they're seeing. You know what I mean? Um, Willard looks like that if you can't hear what is happening on the screen. But Willard is not the audience's, you know... um, I don't know. Willard does not represent the audience. You know what I mean? Mm. Willard represents something else. And I think one of the reasons I love this movie is because Willard is just as dark as Kurtz. But Willard doesn't know it yet. But Kurtz knows it. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the movie is that... It's one of the things I disagree with Roger Ebert about when he talks about in his great movies essay... That it's, you know, he talks about the idea that Kurtz has figured something out about, like, the nature of war. And I don't think that's true. I think that Kurtz has figured out something about the nature of man. And how oh, yeah. war uh, is inherent. The the action of war is inherent to um, the nature of man. Oh, my God. There, it's a motorcycle gang. The Pivotal Film Studio needs to move. Off of I-90, I-91. I like this. I like this, <laughs> I like this tower this I built. Um, yeah, there's this tower that hangs over I-91 <laughs> like that weirdo That's... breezeway in Nebraska. Excuse me. <laughs> Land per square feet is cheap over a freeway. <laughs> um, I always just find it, I find that really fascinating. And like, after, uh, the scene that always gets me every single time is when, um, the scene where Lawrence Fishburne, where they kind of pull over that boat of, of you know, the Vietnam villagers. You know, they're just going to check it out. And Frederick Forrest is just going kind of crazy on it. He's like, they don't have anything, man. They don't fucking have anything. And that one woman kind of bolts. And then Lawrence Fishburne's clean just kind of empties a weapon onto everybody that's on the fucking boat. And they're all just standing horrified and they realize that, that woman was going for a dog and then they find that one woman is alive and they want to try to save her and then Martin Sheen just puts a bullet at her and he's just like you shouldn't have pulled over you know I he's it, in, in the sense of the narrative he's reestablishing his authority but in the sense of the metaphysics of the movie he is establishing that he is growing closer to Kurt's not as someone who is involved with war, but as a person. And I, I super fucking dig that man. Then that's that is an intense, intense human realization. Um, that this movie really does. That's one of the things that I kind of like. Francis Ford Coppola at Cannes was like, "Oh, I made a movie that." shows what Vietnam was really like. And I don't know if Vietnam was really like this, but Vietnam, I think, made people question the idea of what it meant to be a person. 
and what it meant to exist on the same plane of existence as someone that lived a whole world away from you. But they were just... You couldn't perceive that you weren't allowed to perceive them as people because if you perceive them as people, you couldn't operate, you couldn't do any of the things you needed to do, um, or that the Vietnam War was making you do. Um, it just it just has so many it just asks so many questions and it doesn't have any answers and the answers that it gives you are just like oh yeah read some T S Eliot, read read Heart of Darkness and read T S Eliot and then you'll just understand everything. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate for you because of like the poetry, like you mentioned, like the thing that this movie hinges on poetry, um, which is why I don't have a lot to say about it because it, it is is a great film. It's it's technically a masterpiece. It's the performances are out of this world, but it just you know it is like any other art. Sometimes it speaks to the person, sometimes it doesn't. I can respect it on an intellectual level. I hate watching this movie. I I. It is because it of is the slowness. It's it's yeah. It's it's not even the slowness. I I like slow. I can appreciate a slow film, but there is a certain lack of of volume to which it speaks to me. Mm. Um, for some you know ephoral reason that I can't really respond to, that it just it 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 is a mental chore for mm. me. Yeah. And I, which is which is kind of almost the great thing about art. It's, that's the great thing about art is is the fact that, um, you know, for for one person it can be the, this remarkable feature, can, it, and that's you know it received mixed reviews on its release, right? And and there's this contemplation. I've come back to this movie five or six times now because you I, ha- I think because you have to. Yeah, but each time it's just it's yeah. the same. Well, that's the thing. I tend to revel in mental chores. Like I love mental chores. Like they make me so happy. Um. And so the, I think this movie isn't. If I had to track it, if I had to track some of my love of mental chores like later in life, I could pro- possibly point to this movie as being um, responsible, or at least um, speaking to that aspect of my personality which I didn't realize was there before. Which having to grapple with this movie time and time again, you know, year after year, however many times I've seen it, um, you know, I re- I always feel like Dennis Hopper. Where like I feel like I understand like everything that's happening, but the more I talk about it, the more I realize like, well, I don't really understand everything. There's so much here, man. There's a depth, man. And I want to say man after everything I say. I should have said man after <laughs> every sentence. It would have been appropriate. I think it's required. Um, um, really quickly though, yeah. one thing to mention, and this is a, a weird comment: that Bob Peak poster, the theatrical, that, that famous poster of it. Has to be like one of the the greatest posters of all time, right? Sure, like the melting Kurt's face, the melting Kurt's face with the red sun and the exploding kind of skyline beneath. That it's just fantastic. It's a great poster. It's so that's the thing. I mean, Bob Peake had some really good posters. So I want you to tell me this real quick. Because he had like all those really good. The first like five Star Trek films, um, West Side Story. That's a good poster. Yeah, was a great poster. Um, what else? He did some of the Bond ones. Pivotal poster. That's after Pivotal books. And he also apparently he apparently also did Rollerball, which is hmm. you know, the poster for Rollerball. So one of the things that Roger Ebert mentions, and we can end on this. One of the things that Roger Ebert mentions on his essay is that like um, the payoff with Kurtz is totally worthy of the journey. Like the Martin Brand, the, uh, the Marlon Brand and Martin Brando. 
the Marlon Brando performance, um, like, sells it. You know what I mean? Like, there's that, which the poster speaks to, this inherent menace, just, you know, pulsing through the whole film. Regardless of whatever else is happening, you have this idea that, like, Kurtz is even worse than this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Does that work for you? Like, does Brando sell that enough for you? Because he, he does for me. Um, I find it a really fascinating, like, performance. And it's the one part of the documentary, like, Hearts of Darkness, um, that I find really compelling is kind of digging into the Brando process when he was on set. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if it, it, it doesn't really work for me. I, I found... I actually actively dislike Brando's performance in this. To be <gasps> Why? It's just it's it's a, it's a I am not a Brando guy, and I find it overwrought. I find everything he does in this movie overwrought. I love Martin Sheen in this. Yeah, Martin Sheen is re- so good. Fucking love Duvall for the reasons you said. Um, but do you like Harrison Ford in this? <laughs> but um, I, I I cannot stand. There, there's, there's a, a pretense to every Brando performance I've ever seen. Every, every time, sure. every time I see Brando, I see acting. I don't see a living performance. I actually, this is going to be a controversial hot take. I don't think he was that good of an actor. Huh? Because it's just he, he was. Not even in like the early stuff, like Streetcar and On the Waterfront, and. Nope, I see a man acting. Hmm. Every. Maybe Streetcar. Scar, no, 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 definitely not Streetcar. Uh, maybe no, I, no, yeah, nothing. I, every I time I see, is. every time I see a Brando performance, I see someone. There, there is a because he. Do you think it's because too that he's? We've seen he, we've been his, watching the sons of Brando speech, for so long. Uh, no, it's no, it's because of his. His speech is unlike a person talking. He is projecting. And speaking with a, not tone, speaking, I don't want to say cadence again, but speaking with a rhythm mm-hmm. that feels unnatural in everything he ever did mm-hmm. to me. It is. I, can't, uh, I don't think of, I can disagree with you on that. I think that just works for me. Yeah, I, I need you. someone. Yeah, I, I am of that. You know me, man. I'm of that, uh, that new wave sort of want to where I, where I want. A real lived-in, realistic sort of perfor- uh, performance. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about the bicycle thieves, where even if you have unprofessional, you know, not professional act, non-professional actors speaking in a way that feels like real people speak is always going to draw me more than someone projecting a role. Mm. And Brando, I saw you see brand it's not that you see brando like maybe he actually lived in the roles physically uh-huh. but that voice was always you knew i knew he was in it i knew it was a film as well i find this increasingly fascinating as we like get closer to number 1 on our lists like the ways in which impressionism and realism have kind of defined which is great because like, my number, the nature of our list my number 1 absolutely has very stilted unnatural very Actory acting in it, but but it's not. An, but it's, it's, it's not a an movie unrealistic that, movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I didn't really think that was going to happen. Not because like I don't know what you like and you don't know what I like, but it's one of those things that like 
like, as I said, the further that we go on, there is a clear like division of mm-hmm. um, aesthetic that we that we each respond to differently. And it's, I just find it really interesting. And you're just like, you, you, my aesthetic is right, and your aesthetic is garbage, Mario. <laughs> I feel that I feel that way about lots of different things. So it's like my my ice cream choices are always better than everyone else's ice cream choices. I had a really fucking good ice cream um, recently. From uh, it was just it was a it was a Turkey Hill ice cream uh, that I got because sometimes every so often I want a like a you know a little little cart of uh, ice cream of ice cream. Sure, sure, sure. And it was a Triopolitan, not mm-hmm. a Neapolitan, a Triopolitan. It was chocolate, caramel, and coconut. Ooh. Good. Sounds good. Really good. I ate that yeah. in two days. I felt very embarrassed about myself. Why? Because I ate a full. You can only feel embarrassed days. if you don't if you eat it in one day. Okay. Two days is fine. Oh yeah, it's only eight hundred calories, and I didn't. And if you're not eating a lot before that, then yeah, exactly. I didn't. Well, you earned, I, you I earned also, it. I was also pretty drunk on the second day. Then you didn't. Well, you had no choice. Yeah, you did what true. you had to do. I had some spaghetti. That happens with me. With had some the, spaghetti, and then I had some. Then I had, Half a carton of ice cream. That happens with me in McDonald's sometimes, Mario. I don't want to do it, but sometimes I have to. I luckily have <laughs> do not subject myself to McDonald's. Archie Moore's buffalo chicken nachos, though, regularly during a kickball season, I will find myself ordering those. Yeah, Especially when there's a WWE pay-per-view. I'm going to be honest with you. Those buffalo chicken nachos are problematic. They are. And there's not nearly... In a great way. They're problematic in, in the best way. Like, in the worst way from a health standpoint, but in the best way... From a well, in the worst way, standpoint. also from a value standpoint, because there aren't nearly enough buffalo nachos on that plate. That's why I ordered them. There just for, aren't. I'm sorry. If you order them as takeout, we re- order them takeout. Do you see the difference when you order takeout? You get like a full, like tin versus like yeah. They small do not plate. care for the takeouts. So they're just like, this is what we got. Here you go. Which ends up being like t- a double order. Yeah, pretty great. We should have got that tonight. It's too late now, though, Mario. It is too late. Oh, well. But it's not too late to follow us or communicate with us on Twitter at twitter.com slash filmpivotal, where we will communicate back with you. Cause if anyone bothers to communicate with us, we will communicate back we'll, with you. We'll communicate ad nauseum to you incessantly. Um, we'll spam you. <laughs> yeah, we'll be very obnoxious. We'll actually send you cans of spam. You can, if you also want to communicate with us obnoxiously, you can send us an email to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and you can see a list of the beers that we drank or the movies that are on our lists or links to how to subscribe to us or you can drop us a comment there. Um... Until then, go see a movie, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week.